question together, not just of how do we engage with climate change, but how do we as Christians, as a church, reflect the love that God has for his creation in our actions, in our words, and in our worship. And today is our last Sunday in this sermon series, but it's by no means the last time that we should talk about climate change or engage with it or pray about it. Because I don't know about you, but right now, similar to Emily, I am paying more attention. I'm becoming more aware of the choices that I make and that I have made. I see so often how I've chosen convenience over um, caring responsibly for God's creation. I can't believe how many of the songs that we sing here in church that we've sung for years, how many of them use creation imagery and how many times I've missed that as we've sung them over the years. I'm trying to stay open to learning, to being challenged. I'm reminding myself to pray because I know that I'm prone to forget. I want to keep paying attention. And I hope that your perspective has been widened too, not just to our participation and our responsibility, but widened in our understanding of God's love for the whole of his creation and how his redemptive plan is at work here too. So today we finish having heard from Zach last week about how the work of Jesus reshapes our relationship with creation and restores hope in this mess that we see around us. And we're finishing today by looking ahead. As Christians, we are always those who look ahead. The Bible tells us that God has planted eternity in the human heart, which means that we never just look to the here and now, we look much farther ahead. And actually the, the broader climate change movement kind of calls us to something similar. When COP26 was happening, um, back last term, one morning on the canal, I was walking to Central actually, and I passed a group of people who, I didn't know who they were at the time, but they looked like they were having a lot of fun. They were a lot older. That's not a, a comment on age. It just happened to be what, where they were. They all looked like they were retired. And um, it turned out, I saw them later on BBC News, it turned out that they were from this uh, group called Grandparents for Future. And they were walking to Glasgow from Sweden, which was where they were from. Isn't that amazing? Their motivation was um, that they knew they wouldn't have to live the majority of their lives dealing with the consequences of climate change, but that their grandchildren would, and that their great-grandchildren would, and that future generations would. And so they were taking action in a way that they could. They were looking further ahead. We are those who should be looking further ahead, but not just to our immediate future, and not even just to future generations, although that's really vital. We're looking further ahead to the full and total redemptive work that Jesus is bringing and that we are actively waiting for. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann speaks about this in his book, Theology of Hope. And Ruth Valerio actually quotes this, this passage in, in her book, Ellis for Lifestyle, which you'll have heard us recommend throughout this whole series. And the section I'm about to quote, he uses the word eschatology. And you may know what that means, but if you don't, 
just to let you know, because it's important that you know it so you can understand what I'm about to share with you. It's a doctrine within Christian theology that's concerned with last things, the study of last things, kind of end times is maybe another way you might have heard it expressed. And he says this, listen to this, eschatology means the doctrine of the Christian hope which embraces both the object hoped for and also the hope inspired by it, from first to last and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology, is hope, forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. The eschatological is not one element of Christianity, but it is the medium of Christian faith as such. The key in which everything in it is set. The glow that suffuses everything here in the dawn of an expected new day. Moltmann really helpfully explains that point of tension that we often find very difficult because we seem to either go only or or mostly to that moment of glorious fulfillment when Jesus finally redeems everything. And we would leave here, if we stayed just in that place, we would leave here with our spirits lifted, but with our perspective skewed, saying, well, it's hard now, but we'll just keep looking to Jesus' return. That's one perspective. Or we find ourselves only crying out for the injustice and the frustration of the current crisis moment we're in with no wider lens of theological context to help us understand it. And we find ourselves bouncing back and forth between those two camps and it's frustrating. And that's kind of what Moltmann is getting at here because it's not one or the other. We are not meant to bounce back and forth between the two. It is both and all at the same time. Scripture speaks of the deep tension of actively waiting far more than we would like it to. We live in the now and the not yet of God's kingdom coming. We have a glorious hope to anticipate and we have a right royal mess here and now. So how on earth do we sustain ourselves and our faith, sustain our hope and sustain our action in the midst of that kind of waiting? I'm going to read this morning from Romans 8. It's going to appear on the screen behind me or you can follow along or just listen if you want to. This is starting at verse 19. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. 
Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Let me pray. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and to breathe on these words and to bring them alive to us once more, to bring life out of them and grow life amongst us this morning. Amen. So the bulk of this passage, as maybe you picked up, it speaks about the groans of creation. It speaks of the hope that we're waiting for, and it speaks of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. But the opening, those first few verses, sets a really important part of the scene. Right from the beginning of the passage, we read about our frustrated world. Verse 20, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice a truth that we know all too well and see the consequences of that frustration daily. And we also read in verse 21 about the hope of liberation. Creation will be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into freedom. We live in a world that is frustrated and we hope for a time when that frustration will be transformed into freedom. But where are we in the midst of that? Where do followers of Jesus find themselves? As we consider the middle ground of the now and not yet, how are we meant to be and act here? I think the key that we need to walk into the rest of this passage with is in verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The frustration of the world and its eventual liberation is ultimately God's work. But it is a work that we know we are invited into. And yet how we view ourselves as we walk into that action seems from this like it might be really important. When God's people live in the reality of knowing their identity as children of God, all creation likewise begins to find its right place again. And we see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. When we truly step into our calling in God, it literally has an impact on the environment and on the world around us. Creation is waiting with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for us to live as we truly are, as dearly loved children of God. It's from that place of true identity that our love and our passion and our activism stems. From the place of a deep heart connection to the heart of God for his creation, for his people. And then from there we move into the rest of the passage. 
Pete Gregg also uh, talks about this passage. I've heard him preach on it before, and I am shamelessly stealing some of what he has said about it because it was really good, and I think it's really helpful, so you can forgive me for that. But he talks about how there are, are three groans that we encounter in this passage. Maybe you picked them up. Firstly, creation is groaning. Secondly, we are groaning. And thirdly, the spirit is groaning. Creation is groaning. It can be really hard to endure the groaning of creation because it feels sometimes like it is unbearably loud. Mary prayed here last week about some of the ways that our world is crying out through earthquakes and fires and tsunamis and landslides. And closer to home, I read that this week flooding is the new reality in Wales. Isn't that crazy? If you live in Wales, that's your new reality. Many of us will have seen to a greater or lesser extent and endured some of the storms of the past few days and seen in some places across our country the devastating outcome of them and the continual effect of them, one after the other. Our world is groaning loudly and it can be really hard to endure that kind of disaster news all the time. But it's happening all around us. And as we have learned and been reminded of throughout this, climate change is a justice issue. It is developing nations who will be hit hardest. It is the poor who will suffer the most. And we have a hand in this somewhere. And that has been consistently hard to hear. As we endure the groaning of creation, we easily can assume a lot of guilt and unease about our part in these huge monumental happenings. How on earth do we recognize our part and our responsibility and our place in this without becoming completely overwhelmed by it all, without being completely distracted and consumed by it? What is our response to this noisy, hurting world. Well, I think we join in the groaning. Creation is groaning, but we are invited to groan as well. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship which is a reminder again there of the need to know our identity as children of God. As our world cries out, so do we. But crucially, we are not groaning with the world here. Yes, we lament the destruction, we cry out for it, and we rally against it where we can. But we are not groaning with the world. We are groaning with the Spirit. We read here that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, which encourages me to know that there will be more. We know that we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And so everything we do, everything we say, everything we cry out for is driven not from our own human motivations. Because as passionate as you are, and as driven as we can be, our human inclinations will never sustain us for long. Rather, it is driven from the Spirit of God within us as we live more and more into our identity as dearly loved children. 
Creation is groaning, we are groaning, and the spirit is groaning. It can be a real tension sometimes to look at the world and all that is raging here and all that is raging within our own lives and wonder where is God in the midst of it? Why doesn't he intervene whenever we ask him to? Why isn't that great suffering on those who are just caught in the middle? Why isn't that alleviated? There is no simple answer. There's no simple answer here and I would never try and give one. In fact, the truest answer I could give you would be, I don't know. The tendrils of sin are great and its reach wreaks havoc in the world. But there is no simple answer to the question of suffering, environmentally, humanely, or, or otherwise. However, this passage does, I think, give us something to hold on to. Verse 26, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The Spirit is groaning too. When we get overwhelmed with the magnitude of the climate crisis, when we find it too hard to see another natural disaster in our newsfeed, when we see poverty or starvation, destitution increasing, when the sufferings in our own lives seem too much to bear and we simply do not have the words, the Spirit of God stands in the gap and intercedes on our behalf with wordless groans of deepest empathy. And he leads us, I think, as he always does, to Jesus, who took on the weight of the brokenness of the world. He took it upon himself and exchanged it for an everlasting hope. There's something in these verses, I, I don't know if you noticed it, right near the beginning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. That stood out to me, as in the pains of childbirth. The final word here is not death. The final word is life. This is a groaning unto life, not unto death. God has not forgotten his creation. The notion that this is all up to us and that no one is coming to save us is quite a prevalent phrase within climate activism and is honestly one of the biggest lies that we could ever believe. Because the climate crisis matters deeply to Jesus and I believe is included into God's redemption plan because this creation is his. And so if it matters to him, it should matter to us. We will find ourselves caught in the tension of the now and the not yet until the point of Jesus' return. And we will have moments of despair, but we will also have great big flashes of hope because hope, not despair, is the final word here. As we close, I think there are three calls to us. Maybe you find yourself in one of them. 
The first is a call to pray, a call to pray with hope, to be those who intercede and who stand in the gap and who definitively choose to pray with hope. But be ready because I wonder that when we truly embrace this kind of praying, that God may actually increase our groaning. We sing that song here often, break my heart for what breaks yours. It's a pretty dangerous thing to sing. But what an incredible thing to partner with God on, to join in with that deep groaning. Pete Gregg says that to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with agony as well as ecstasy. Are you willing to be one who prays with hope? Secondly, wait with hope. Perhaps you're feeling that draw to look further ahead than you previously have. Maybe you know that your head has gone down, and rightly so, but God has planted eternity in your heart. And maybe he's calling you to look up, to look ahead, to remember the long game of hopeful anticipation that he has invited you into that doesn't finish at the grave. To stand in that place of tension, of both and, of now and not yet, and wait actively with eager expectation. And finally, act with hope. Maybe you feel called more than you thought you would to activity, perhaps even to activism like Grandparents for Future. What is the activity that God is beckoning you into? How can you participate more fully with him as his kingdom is revealed? And what will be the cost? Because a life of hopeful action with God is one that will bring deep joy, and will require some sacrifice. How do I know that? Because that is what we see in the life of Jesus. That is what we follow. That is the model that is laid out for us. Let's embrace that joyfully as we act with hope. What is God prompting you towards today? To pray, to wait, to act. It feels a little bit like we're ending this series, not with a, a full stop of fully knowing what the answer is, but with like an ellipsis of three dots. And that feels right because this, this following Jesus that we've chosen, this life of following him as it leads us to serve others and as it leads us to care for creation, to stand against injustice, to love God with our whole hearts, and our minds and our souls and our strength to love our neighbor as ourselves, it is still in process. There is more to come. There is more to do. There is more to discover. There is a bigger hope that we are invited into. Let me finish by reminding you of a little bit of that quote I used at the beginning, and then I'll pray. Christianity is forward-looking and forward-moving and therefore is also revolutionizing and transforming this present moment. 
Let's allow our here and now to be washed in the glow of the dawn of an expected new day. Let me pray. Jesus, you showed us all of these things. You were one who prayed with hope and you waited with hope and you acted with hope. You showed us what was ahead. You lifted our heads and planted our gaze further than we could plant it ourselves. But in the midst of that, you also completely transform our present moments. And so we ask that you would help us in the tension. Help us in the place of now and not yet to hold on to the hope that we have in you and to be those who do what we can alongside you, who pray, who wait, who act, and who call others who are alongside us to join in as well. So come Holy Spirit and do something amongst us that only you can do. Come and be present with us and prompt us however you want to. Help us to be willing, help us to be open, help us to listen. Amen.